ready for true happiness, for deep fulfillment, for feeling alive, on purpose, and in control of your life again, it's time to be the bold, brilliant, beautiful woman you were born to be. Welcome to the Purpose Girl Podcast. I'm women's happiness and life purpose expert, Karen Rockhunt, and I'm going to teach you how to live on purpose, feel alive, and be happy in every aspect of life. I'm going to get real about my life and interview women who are living on purpose so that you can finally live yours. Welcome to the show. Hello, 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 Purpose Girls. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) That is a hello from my guest that is coming up, Milagros Phillips. And I have to share with all of you, I'm going to out myself. I have a confession. I have a confession that it's only fairly recently that I realized that I have white privilege. And prior to that, as the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, as someone who has experienced anti-Semitism, I truly did not understand this thing about race. I grew up in a fairly Jewish area. I grew up that that was the, you know, an issue. Um, but I didn't understand race. And I didn't even understand why I needed to understand it because I love all people and I just want to hug everybody and I want every woman to feel amazing about herself. So I didn't get it. And then maybe about a year or two ago, I read an article that really got me thinking about how it, w- it was watching all of these senseless, senseless deaths of young people, young African-American people who were simply targeted for their race. And I spoke to a friend of mine who is Caucasian and her husband is African from Africa. And he went to water a friend's plants who was out of town And the police followed him into the building because they, neighbors didn't recognize him. And while he was watering the plants, they hunted him down the door, pinned him to the ground, and wanted him to prove that he was a friend of watering plants. Now, fortunately for him, there was a picture of him on the refrigerator of him with the family. But otherwise, how do you prove that you're friends with somebody? He had a key to the place and he was watering plants. And that really made me wake up to this privilege that I have in this skin that I was born into that has nothing to do with me. And also made me wake up to the real issue of what is going on. And so I have never covered this topic on the Purpose Girl podcast. And yet I feel in every cell and every bone of my body that we will not be able to have the peace and joy and aliveness and expansion that we are all capable of until we really understand this issue and we each do our own part. And that is why I am so honored to share my guest with you today. Let me introduce you to Milagro Phillips. Milagro is known as the race healer. She is an author, a speaker, a seminar leader, and a race coach. She recently created Race Healer TV, which is a talk show about the great work that people are doing in the nation to heal the racial divide. She also created Race Healer Magazine, which will be available at the end of June. She has spent the last 25 years bringing race literacy to universities, 
national leaders, corporations, and nonprofits. Her Facebook is Race Healer TV, Race Demystified, the Race Healer Group. We will have all of these links in the show notes because once you get to know Milagros, you will want more from her. And so Milagros, welcome to the Purpose Girl podcast. Thank you so much for having me on the Purpose Girl podcast. I am honored to be here with you and I'm so excited about um, our conversation today. Yeah, you know, imagine I, being excited about talking about race, right? Oh, <laughs> right, right. Because normally yeah. it's like, oh, we're gonna. Ten- I gotta get tense. I gotta. No, mm. I love this. We're gonna get. To get mm. we're, we're excited about talking about this. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what the tension is, right? So, so I'm eager to get started, right? <laughs> Please get started, girlfriend. Let's go. This Let's is go. so important. Right. Let's go. Yeah. So, so what happens is that uh, when someone mentions the word race, particularly um, to someone who is not a person of color or someone who is not black, um, what happens happens in their body. Mm. And what actually happens in the body is a tightening because talking about race, actually it's like rattling the, the inner chains that are inside your body, right? That are connected to this topic. It means that you're gonna be challenging things that have, you have considered to be truth your entire life. So because you, you receive that conversation as a challenge, you go into fight, flight, or paralysis. Mm-hmm. And so you find that most people, um, they, they want to fly, right? They want to get away from you. <laughs> Just they forget it. I'm going to go. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> I'm, I'm out of here, right? <laughs> yeah. um, they'll fight you. So they'll go into defense mode. And, um, and then you end up arguing and going back and forth about who's right and who's wrong. Or people become paralyzed and, and it's like, they don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, and, and so, so yeah, so that's, that's why um, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenging topic. But I'm going to let you go back because I know you had something you were about well, to say. But I I'm glad to that you started that there. Mm-hmm. No, I love that you started there because there's this duality going on mm-hmm. where we want, I know I do, and I imagine, I believe all of my listeners do want to lean in and want to connect. So I'm glad that you started there. Let's start at the beginning. What do you notice is going on right now? Because race is a hot topic. And there is so much that we we read and we know in terms of companies that diversify are more innovative and more successful. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, I think we don't know how to do the conversation. Yeah, um, that's a biggie for people. Uh, we don't even want to broach the subject, and especially in organizations, people don't want to talk about it. They're afraid of, uh, you know, someone calling them a racist or getting sued or saying the wrong thing and not being politically correct and all of those kinds of things. And so, um, so what happens is that blocks the conversation. And if we can't talk about it, we can't heal it, we can't transform it, we can't do the work that we need to be able to do around it. So we need to be able to open ourselves up to be able to have those, those much needed conversations. Right now, there, there are a couple of things that are happening. Talk about duality, you know? <laughs> uh, one of the things that's happening is that um, people have a greater, you know, people of color have always had an an awareness of race and racism. You can't not because 
it's how you stay safe. It's how you teach your children to stay safe. So you have to be conscious and you have to be aware. And so that's, that's sort of a given for us, right? White people are just waking up. They're just waking up, not just to their privilege, but they're waking up to how their privilege impacts other people negatively. Mm -hmm. That's really difficult for people. Racism comes at four different levels, okay? There's institutional racism, there's systemic racism, there's interpersonal racism, and there's internalized racism. Now, I'm going to just kind of break all of them down to, to help people get a greater sense. So institutional racism has been around for hundreds of years, okay? And, and specifically the way in the form that it's in today, which is a caste system based on color. We call it colorism. Mm. That caste system has been around for at least 500 years, okay? At least. The, the thing about that is if we start there, people don't really get what that institution is, how that institution got started, and, and all those kinds of things. Because I think that so much of um, the, the time people spend learning history sort of spent around, around this particular topic is sort of spent around slavery and mm -hmm. the civil rights movement. As if nothing happened before or in between. You know what I mean? Like it's or just, after, it's, right? Or because after, someone exactly. might say, well, that was 500 years ago. Like, mm -hmm. let's let's move on. And yet mm -hmm. there's there's ramifications of all of our history, including what's written in history books and what is not. Exactly. Exactly. And the truth is we internalize history. Mm. A lot of our history has been very traumatic. And when I say our history, I'm talking about human history. Very traumatic. Um, you know, prior to the enslavement of Africans in the so-called New World, the Europeans were enslaving their own people, and no one ever talks about that. They mm -hmm. literally had over a thousand years to perfect that system. They, um, in fact, the British put anti, um, they put um, abolitionist um, laws in place in 1708. Mm. Prior to that, they were enslaving their own people. Okay. And I'm not talking indentured. I'm talking because that's, that's a different form. Okay. Of slavery. I'm talking about enslavement where, you know, you, you pass down from one generation to another. And there was, there were a lot of different ways that people were being traumatized. The, the Europeans had um, a longstanding history of trade and diplomacy with the Africans prior to them beginning to enslave and, and colonize the African continent. And so, so when you move back, what you realize is that um, the Europeans were, uh, they were lynching people on the street, sometimes five, six, seven people at one time. Mm. They were cutting off people's um, limbs for, um, you know, for stealing bread or for running away or for, for poaching or all those kinds of things. They would behead people. And all of these things were, were public actions, okay? They, they were done in public and uh, people were not only watching that, but their children were watching all of this, okay? Talk about internalized trauma. Mm -hmm. and so these people were internalizing that trauma in, in what we now know. And I'm going to move back and forth because it's not just looking at history, but looking at history and understanding it through the research and the science that we have today so that we can really grasp it, okay? Mm -hmm. So good. Thank you. So we now know through research that and particularly for studying uh, survivors of the Holocaust, that trauma gets passed on. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. We also know through epigenetics now that trauma gets passed on from one generation to another. Literally and, in our genes. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It's in our DNA. Okay. Right. It's in our, right. So there's the yeah. psychological, and I know because mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. see how that was passed from my grandparents to my mother to me. Mm-hmm. There's the psychological piece, but you're, and you're saying in, with epigenetics, it's yeah. literally in our DNA. Exactly. Exactly. So, so the trauma gets passed on at a lot of different levels. levels. You got the emotional level, you have the physical level. You have the, um, you know, psycho-spiritual level, which, you know, mm-hmm. for a lot of people, there's there's a spiritual component to this. And, and I talk about that with, with specific groups. Um, so it's mind, body, spirit, and emotions. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so we have these people who in Europe were, a lot of them were starving. Uh, there was a lot of malnutrition. Um, you know, those who could afford to have, um, well-made clothing, particularly the women were, you know, the clothing was always very restrictive. Hmm. Um, and so, so you have all this incredible restriction, people are traumatized and they're not fed well. Okay. Hmm. So now around the 1500s, um, you know, was soon, you know, the, um, Europeans had traveled the world and so had Africans because Africans literally settled the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they always traveled. And so you, so you have, um, so you have all of that going on. So you have people from the African diaspora all over the world. Okay. Right. Um, and then you also have, um, Europeans who were traveling through Mexico, traveling to various, uh, parts of, um, of central North and South America and the Caribbean as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, after Columbus in, in the 14, late 1490s, after Columbus um, came into the islands and um, you know he actually landed on what is come, not, now known as the Dominican Republic, he, he brought back proof that he had found India, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, and his proof were the Tainos that he, he took with him about 100 Tainos, a few of them actually survived the voyage. But Which were native people. These the were Dominican native. Republic. Yeah, mm-hmm. these were native. They were Tainos and Arawaks in the Dominican Republic. And so, so uh, rather the Tainos are an Arawak people. So, mm-hmm. um, so you have, um, you know, this, this proof that now people, because remember, the populace in Europe were not educated. Most of them couldn't read and write. The monarchy wanted them to, be, uh, to live in ignorance because educated people are dangerous. Yeah. You know? right. and so, um, you know, so, so a lot of people actually believe that the world ended, uh, you know, as, if they couldn't see to the end of the world then the world must end at the edge of the water or at the right. edge of the land and, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and, but you have these people who are being tortured and, and they're starving and, you know, so it's a very difficult life. And you have this man who comes back with gold, silver, um, mm. you know, like food, lots of food. Okay. Mm. Cause you, you've in the Caribbean, you can grow food 365 days a year. Mm. And so, you know, and, and these are starving people. So now all these people are trying to figure out how do we get to where he came from? And I don't mean, when I say he, I don't mean just him alone. Right. Cause there were people coming back and forth. Right. And so 
so you have these these people and and one of the things that was happening throughout Europe, they call it the Spanish Inquisition, but really this was happening throughout Europe, was the papacy and the monarchy were at odds. And they also were trying to figure out how to control people because you you know, you know have um, a monarchy that's made up of a, of a few people, you know, but in comparison to the people they're ruling, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, so Europeans had a fear of the revolt. And, and you can still see that today. Where mm-hmm. wherever Europeans are, they always have this fear of the revolt. Okay, so they so this fear of the revolt, and so they needed to control people, which is why they traumatized people. We have known it isn't just that science is telling us that when you traumatize someone, you traumatize them for generations, unless you do something to heal them. Okay, yeah, but um, it isn't just that science is telling us that; it's that our ancient books told us that. Okay, mm. there's a little thing in the Bible that says, uh, "The sins of the father shall be visited upon the the son seven generations hence." If you substitute the word "sin" for "trauma," mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. You, do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, it's it, <laughs> you know, really. And what you're saying is, for thousands of years, mm-hmm. it's been understood that what one generation experiences, the next generation feels exactly, and exactly. then it goes on and on exactly. and yeah. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about, you're saying the Europeans and, and the revolt, There's it's like the human fear factor, right? The fear mm-hmm. brain like kicks in. Yeah. Oh, if if that person has food, I might not, I can't have it. Or if they know, if they know something I don't know, then I need to try to hold them down. Mm-hmm. There's like, mm-hmm. and we see that today all yeah. over the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the, it, this is so important. And yeah. watching your TED Talk, I learned and, and I did not know, and I will, I am outing my own ignorance here. So thank you for being one of my teachers, Milagros, that the many of the Africans, like you said, traveled the world, kings and queens, well mm-hmm. educated, mm-hmm. not the picture we see right. when we're talking about, you know, uh, human trafficking. Yeah. 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 Well, you, you want to make sure that when you talk about human trafficking at that level, that you dehumanize people. Mm. Because then that makes it a lot easier for you to do what you have to do to control them. Right. Okay? Yeah. Right. Right. And what happens, you know, so so you have the first generation that's traumatized, right? And then the next generation acts out of that trauma, but they don't have the context for the trauma. Do you see what I'm mm. saying? Like, so let's say, um, you know, a, a family or father or mother saw a beheading, right? Mm-hmm. So that traumatizes them. Their child is automatically traumatized, okay? Because remember, we pass it on through epigenetics. Sure. And, but, but that child has no context for the trauma. Mm. So, so scientists did this, this uh, research project where they, they took mice and they were pumping in the fragrance of cherry blossom oil. Okay. Mm. So, so the mice are smelling cherry blossom oil. And every time they would pump in the oil, they would electrocute the mice. Mm. So the mice were traumatized. After a while, you didn't have to use the, the electrical things anymore. All you had to do was pump in the oil and they would go into trauma. Oh, okay. They would act out of the PTSD, right? Right. Of course. Stress. Right. And so 
they found that the next generation acted more traumatized than the first generation. Oh, wow. What I realized by doing my own work and, and, and trying to, because you know, I'm always trying to look at the detail. I'm a detailed person, right? Mm. A big picture with a lot of understanding of the importance of detail because I'm an artist, I'm a painter. Mm. And so, so what, I, what I realized is, well, of course the second generation acts more traumatized because they don't understand why cherry blossom oil is making them act that way because now the trauma has been decontextualized. Mm -hmm. mm. They no longer have the context. So if you have someone who experienced the Holocaust, right? And now you have that they have a child, the child does not ex did not experience the Holocaust, but they're acting out of the trauma and right. the trauma has been decontextualized and you don't really know why you're doing and saying the things that you're doing and saying. Right, right, right. This makes so much, this makes so much sense. The second generation also has had the experience of their parents acting out from the trauma. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. So they, there's the original, right? Like my grandparents would save tea bags, mm -hmm. understandably, and use mm -hmm. them three or four times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And so yep. my mom, like you're saying, didn't understand. She wasn't part of why. But, you know, and then there were, that's a very small example. But my grandparents fear, right? Mm -hmm. They had a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. um, and, yep. and frankly, a lot of um, uh, kind of hatred of, you know, people who did this to them. And mm -hmm. so that mm -hmm. their fear then gets passed to my mom. Mm -hmm. And so she's, she was raised in that kind of environment. Right. So this is, this is interesting. This is, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. And so you have this experience that it, it, you know, so, so now all of this experience is getting passed on, you know, from one generation to another. So let's say that the fourth generation never, um, you know, just never experienced anything negative, had always had this, this wonderful life and no trauma, right? And then someone gets sent to war. Now the whole family is re-traumatized again. Hmm. So, so this is the fourth generation. Now you have another seven generations. So now you have 11 generations. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. So here we are. 11 generations later, people being re-traumatized and people constantly being re-traumatized. And so I wanted to put that as sort of context to some of the stuff that, that I wanna talk about because we don't always take into consideration the intergenerational historical trauma that people of color are constantly experiencing mm. and the macro and micro aggressions and how that affects your uh, emotional health, your physical health. Your, you know, it just really affects people at levels that we don't always consider and we don't always talk about. And yet it needs to also be part of the conversation. Yes, I think it's so, it's so helpful because what you've just given us is the context of 500 years ago and prior to that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And if we think about the days of civil rights, you know, the public civil rights, Martin Luther King Jr., mm -hmm. that wasn't that long ago. That's just about two generations. <laughs> so this is fresh. Exactly. There's a lot of fresh wounding, fresh it, trauma. Exactly. And people are constantly being re-traumatized by watching 
public lynchings. Okay. Yes. Watch, Which we, yes. You know, so watching a policeman kill a black man who's unarmed, watching, mm -hmm. you know, like all of these things uh, constantly re-traumatize people. Yes. And, um, you know, and, and there are folks that are now looking at racism as a public health issue, real Thank public goodness. health issue. Yeah. And so, so, so there's that part of it. The, so you've got this, this, violence that has been passed on for generations, right? And um, in the, the Europeans were really looking at how to maintain this free labor force. Because first, the, the free labor force were first Europeans. But then when they started coming and settling and looking at these new lands, Suddenly, there was land to be had, which was taken from the, the natives because there were natives, there were millions, there were literally millions of natives living in North, Central, South America and the Caribbean. And they were all annihilated, a lot of them from diseases, um, others were, were killed and, you know, and, and the land was taken over. Okay, mm -hmm. so that was one of the first things that happened. The Europeans then tried to enslave, uh, well, they brought some enslaved white people with them, Europeans with them. I have a very good friend um, that teaches at Harvard that traces his family back to white slaves in America. Wow. And, um, and, but they made terrible slaves because heaven helped them, they would run away. They would get on ships and go back to Europe and settle somewhere else that no one knew them and end the story. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then you have um, the um, Europeans try to enslave natives. And they claim that natives made terrible slaves because heaven helped them, they would run away. And <laughs> they, would have, they would hide with other tribes and they would tell other tribes what was going on. And so that wasn't working for them. Then they figured because they had longstanding relationships with uh, with Africans, and by the way, there were black royal houses in Europe. Uh, the, the Sousas are, are, are a black branch of the, the Portuguese royal family. And so, so they already knew what these people look like and they thought, well, you know, they look different from us, right? Hmm. That the hair texture is different from ours. They just look different from us. So they started enslaving them. Hmm. And they gave themselves a hundred years to really um, to really figure it out and really um, hone in on it, okay? Like how to how, how to do it well? How, how to, make to do system, it really exactly? Which is making my stomach sick. Probably yeah. everybody else, but yeah, yeah. Thank you for this. This is so important to yeah. understand. And so once they had figured that out, which was between the 1500s and the 1700s, so a couple hundred years, okay, then they put abolitionist laws in the books in Europe. Hmm. So, for instance, um, in England, their abolitionist wars, uh, abolitionist uh, laws go, uh, there, I think it was like 1708 is when you start to see that. So they no longer needed to continue to enslave the Europeans as a free labor force. Now they had this free labor force. And what they realized is they could have this free labor force all over the world. And they chose specifically places right around the equator. And those places were chosen for some very specific reasons. Those places had food that you could import and export year round. Hmm. They had gold 
silver. I mean, I, I want to say it was like three years ago or so. Um, I was visiting a relative in Florida and they were listening to the news in the Dominican Republic and they found a new vein of gold that the Canadians mm. were trying to take out of the country. Mm. And I don't know whatever happened with that, but, but what I'm saying to you is that here you have precious metals, you have gold, you have silver, you have diamonds, you have precious and semi-precious stones. Um, you, I mean, you know, so these places were rich with that, plus you had food, and now you could feed people who were malnutrition and starving. Right, right. Not that, yeah, Ugh. absolutely. Not only that, but you could also sell these things. Well, now you've got all this stuff figured out, and, you know, what you need is a crop of people who could tend the land so that you could continue to get wealthy by selling the products of their labor to the entire world. Mm. So, and, and the thing is that the entire world was complicit, okay? Because people were buying um, clothing that were made from the cotton that was picked by the enslaved people. Right. People were uh, drinking coffee and tea and putting sugar in it that was being farmed by the people um, who worked in the plantations? Mm. You were, you know, so so it, it became a global economy. It right. became a global economy, and that's how it becomes institutionalized. Absolutely, right. Absolutely. It, it's, you know, again, I am. I will out my own ignorance because I think it's important that I would say about three years ago, Josh and I saw some documentary about where our clothes came from, mm. and without even thinking about. Well, how come we can buy clothes so cheap at Old Navy? And learning, oh, it's so cheap there because it's children who yeah. are, you know, making. And then it was, oh my God, okay, we're not going to do that anymore. But we don't even think about, you know, it shows up on our shelves. We don't, like you said, it's we don't know what we don't know. But I wanted to do this episode because episode because we need to be responsible for knowing. Absolutely. Because I think once we know, we say, well, I don't want to be any part of that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. The, when it comes to racism, ignorance is key to maintaining it. Mm-hmm. You need people to not know because our true nature as human beings, who we are, how we show up on the planet is pure love. Mm. When you think about looking at a newborn baby and you think about, um, you know, just between zero and one and you look at, at babies, you see who we really are. Yeah. You smile at them, they smile back. They, yeah. you know, like it, it's just so. Natural. And they love everybody. Yes. And yeah, it's so, love is so natural. And you look at, you're right, little children and they're playing with each other and they're not thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're two, they're, you know, two, three years old, they're not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is so, our natural state. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so our natural state really is love. And, mm-hmm. and what the research is telling us is that human beings are wired for bliss and they're wired for spirituality. Mm-hmm. And so in order to be able to take over a people, you have to destabilize them. Mm-hmm. And how you destabilize them is by taking away um, as much of who they are as possible. So their language, mm. their land, Mm-hmm. There, you know, th- that's how you destabilize people. You destabilize um, a, a community by, um, you know, first you they be, you know they begin to rape women and yeah. um, and kill because if you destabilize the women, you destabilize the children. 
right. and generations to come, right? Right. You right. also destabilize the men because they're trying to defend the women, but they can't because they're being they're being killed because the weapons that you know people are showing up armored for war that you in your village were not expecting. Right. Okay. Right. Right. And, so, and this is such an interesting point too mm-hmm. about women because this podcast are you know our listeners are women. And the reason I'm so passionate about empowering women is because as a woman is educated, so too are her children, and therefore so too is the community, therefore so too is the world. As a woman owns herself and her power and her happiness, so too are her children, and so too then is the world. So to hear you say that part of breaking down an entire people was to break down the women, it breaks my heart, but it it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about destabilization is that once the community is destabilized, then you can steal from them. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to fight them to steal from them. It's very right. easy. And you can establish rule. That doesn't mean that people aren't going to fight you. That doesn't mean they're not going to revolt or any of those things. But what it does mean is that if you have a system that you have already proven, you you have a way that you know you can destabilize people is through trauma, right? So, and you don't need to to traumatize everybody. Mm -hmm. You only need to traumatize a certain segment of the population, a certain number of people in, in the community, and the whole community becomes destabilized. Yeah, this... This is, I mean, it's um, it's bone chilling in the worst way. And then we can see the impact of it still today. Absolutely. So here Absolutely. we, right here we are, 2019. And technically, quote unquote, everyone is, at least here in the United States of America, and, and I know that we have listeners all over the world, everyone is technically, quote unquote, equal, technically, quote unquote, free. And I say the quote unquote, because there is this institutional, we see it in the wage gap, we see it in the discrimination, we see it in so many places. How do we, how do we even begin to shift and to support our brothers and sisters to heal and, and thrive? So the first realization is that we all need healing. Mm. Healing may take on different form, but we all need healing, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, But in order for that to happen, you have to take responsibility for the fact that that you have, that you're broken. Do you know hmm. what I mean? Like, there's an issue here. I always tell people, you know, there was a time that I was in my own ignorance around certain things in life. Mm-hmm. And then I became aware And at some point that awareness became the information that led me to understand that I needed healing. So Mm. at some point I became healthy enough to realize that I need healing. Mm -hmm. Part of the issue with racism is racism is a white problem. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me, let me, let me explain that. Racism is a problem for people of color but it is not the problem of people of color. Mm -hmm. People of color have another issue to solve. People of color have to solve their own uh, prejudices, how they 
they internalize the institutional and systemic racism, okay? Mm-hmm. Which shows mm-hmm. up as colorism, it shows up as, as uh, oppression, it shows up in a variety of forms, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's the piece that we have to heal. White people need to heal racism. That's their problem, okay? Mm-hmm. And that problem is predicated on violence and maintained through violence, whether it's economic violence, physical violence, emotional violence, spiritual violence. It, it, it's maintained through violence. So the first thing that whites need to do is they need to own their own dysfunction. They need to start breaking it down, looking at it, looking at the various ways, because the truth is that ultimately, if you really peel back the layers, what whites find out is that they too are oppressed, Mm. but their oppression is hidden behind privilege and it's hidden behind a pseudo freedom Mm. that people of color don't have. And in order for whites to maintain that freedom, and in order for them to maintain their privilege, there are certain rules that they have to follow. And if they break those rules, then they're subject to losing their whiteness. Because whiteness is not just a skin color. It is a privilege bestowed upon. And if it's bestowed upon you, it can also be taken away. Mm. And so whites need to understand the role that they are playing in maintaining the dysfunction how they're getting paid, literally paid by dollars and cents to maintain the dysfunction, which then destabilizes their brothers and sisters all over the world. Yeah. They have to own that piece. Once they own that, then they can start to heal. Yeah. And I want to pause there with with owning Mm -hmm. because listening to this, I can imagine a lot of people listening to this are going, but I don't hold anyone down. But I don't, and and I'm saying that because I'm I'm wanting to own. I'm wanting to heal and I'm I'm wanting to do my part and I'm wanting to be aware of the places that I have blind spots and I'm wanting to know Milagros. What does that look like and and tangibly mean in terms of ownership? You know, I'm not paying one person different than another. I'm not You see what I'm saying? I, I would love to know so how do we what does that mean in in kind of tangible terms. Sure. Yeah. So for instance, there's some recent studies that have been done where they look at pay scale, because that's Mm -hmm. pretty obvious, right? That's dollars and cents, right? And for every dollar, every one full dollar that a white male makes, a white female makes 80 cents. Mm -hmm. A black male makes 70 cents. Mm -hmm. A black female makes 60 cents, somewhere around there. Mm. A Latino, Latinx, male and female make around 53 cents for the same dollar. Mm. So so that's just pay scale, right? Mm -hmm. When you start to look at intergenerational and historical wealth, okay, how wealth has gotten passed down, the people who actually created the wealth were the workers. Mm-hmm. They didn't have access to the wealth. Right. Okay? So right. let's say I start a restaurant, right? And I hire you and I hire your husband and your friends and your children. I, and I hire a bunch of people and everybody has a different job, different specialty. Okay. And um, I don't pay anybody a cent. I'm amassing great wealth. 
Right. And then I now take the food that all of you guys make and I send it all over the world. And now I'm getting all these orders from all over the world, but I'm still not paying you a cent. Right. I'm right. amassing great wealth. Now I can take that wealth and I can use that wealth to create an army, which then I use to control you because you're now thinking, well, we're doing all the work. How come we're not getting paid? And that right. person's getting rich. So now you're going to be afraid that they're going to come back and get you for what you're exploiting them for. So you need something or someone or some group to protect you. So you need a buffer, right? Yes. Yeah. So part of that buffer are people in the middle class. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so, so as I think about my own life right now, right? Mm. And I want to, I want to heal. I want to personally heal and I want to personally do my part. How, how do, how do I start to, I, I totally get the history and it's so important and I totally get where we are. I want to know what, what do I need to know and do mm-hmm. now? Because I don't, as an example, I don't have a payroll. If I had a payroll, I would make sure everybody is paid the same. So how, how do I take what you're teaching and, and implement it in a personal way? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that um, is really important is listening to the mm. people who are sitting on the cauldron, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> people who are sitting on the hot stove <laughs> because, because clearly they are uncomfortable, okay? Mm. And so very often um, the white population wants to do something, but they don't want to be uncomfortable to do it. Mm. And so you can't even have a conversation because that makes me uncomfortable and it's fight, flight, or paralysis. That's why we started there. Yes, yes. (laughs) And so if you're, if I have something happening, like, you know, so, you know, I want to tell you that, you know, I had a friend that got like like the story that you told about your friend who's watering plants, right? Yes. And, And you and I, let's say we're both white and you and I can't have a conversation about that because... I'm uncomfortable. Can you imagine how your friend who was watering plants feels? Mm. And you can't sit in that discomfort for 10 minutes to have a conversation with me? Yes. So the first thing is you can't go around this stuff. You have to go through it. You have have to be in it. Absolutely. You have to be willing to sit in the discomfort. You have to learn to listen to what people are saying to you about what is happening to them. Because so often people of color want to tell their story because part of telling your story is you're expressing it or you're pressing it out of yourself. Yes. Okay? Yes. So that it doesn't just linger and sit there as a tight ball in your body then making you sick, right? So we, so we want to be able to tell our stories and no one wants to listen. Mm. People in power that could make the shift, that could help change things, don't want to listen. But they will listen to another white person. So whites have a huge responsibility. This has been handed to them from, you know, generation one right through to now. So there is the ancestral responsibility and then there's this responsibility for now. And part of that responsibility is being aware, becoming race literate, which in other words means understanding your history, understanding your black history, 
because white people have a black history. Okay. Yes. <laughs> you know, there is no black history without the white history in this country anyway. Okay. And right. So, well, I, and thank you for saying this because like, right. It's like in college, I could have taken history and then I could take African-American history or black mm -hmm. history. And it's like, mm -hmm. no, it's all history. But mm -hmm. that right there is, is just such a great tangible example of, of institutionalized racism that we call history, history, but yeah. we got, it's like yeah. marriage is marriage, but gay marriage is something else. No, it's all mm -hmm. just marriage. Mm -hmm. And so I, I love what you're saying, listening, yeah. wanting to know, wanting to know, wanting to hear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this perception that if someone talks to you about race, that they're trying to take something from you. They're trying to take mm. their history from you. They're trying to take your belief system from you. They're trying to take money from you because of reparations. They, you know, there's this perception that if someone talks about race, they, they want something from you. And I think it's so interesting after people of color have literally built the world mm. and certainly in the last 500 years for free, okay, <laughs> that, that whites have this fear that someone's going to take something away from them. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. Very often, let's talk about it from the perspective of money. Okay. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of uh, people who have wealth who are terrified of losing that wealth. In fact, they're so terrified that if the, the stock market goes down, they kill themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to live without the money. So mm -hmm. part of that, okay, so, so there are those people, right? Then there are these other people, they call themselves self-made millionaires. Most of them have lost their money, won their money again, lost their money, <laughs> not their, you know, like they, they, so they have a cycle. And so they understand the cycle. Yes. So they know that they can build their wealth again. Okay. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. If your wealth, if you got your wealth for free through somebody else's labor, you're going to be terrified of losing that wealth. And the reason for that is because you don't know how to make it because mm. you didn't make it yourself. Right. Okay. So you're going to be right, terrified right, of losing right. it because you have no idea how you're ever going to replace this from scratch. Mm. And even if in a current generation, that's, that's not how someone's making their money based on what we talked about with epigenetics, mm -hmm. that the story is passed on generation to generation. And so this could have been four or five, six generations ago for someone listening to this, but it's somewhere in the, it's in your DNA and it's that, that fear is yeah. placed now in the DNA and right. is placed now in, it's like in the soup that you're sitting in without even realizing that you're in a soup. Exactly. So yeah. how we heal, how we heal is by becoming aware, getting rid of the ignorance, mm -hmm. allowing ourselves our emotions because emotions are going to come up. Because one of the things that particularly whites discover in this process is that they've been duped. Their real history has been hidden from them. Yes. They've not been given, um, you, you know, so they've been treated like children because, because patriarchy infantilizes people. Mm -hmm. The whole idea is to infantilize people because it's easy to destabilize an infant. Yes. Okay. And so, right. so they right. need for you to be ignorant and they need for you, you know, like the whole system needs for you to not know and not be awake and not be aware. Okay. So part of healing and transforming is you got to become aware. 
you need to understand the historical context of this stuff because a lot of what often happens is people have these conversations but without the historical context it's just sort of just sitting there okay mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. without it being attached or linked to anything and it's important to make the links and connect the dots okay Absolutely. Uh, because then you start to see how it's playing out today in today's world okay yes. and and so people who truly want to create a new, a new and different culture, a culture of equity, a culture of compassion, a culture of, of um, people who are awake and aware, need to go through a process of their own transformation, their own awareness, because it's, it's the macro, uh, the micro, that then gets represented in the macro, okay? Mm. So it's as within, so without. So part of the process is understanding how this stuff works, how it plays out, understanding the context of it, being able to listen to the people who are in it, who are telling you their stories. Stop uh, minimizing the pain that comes with those stories and even the pain of the telling of those stories. Right. Um, you know, look at what is really happening and stop making excuses. Like, you know, a 12 year old gets shot by the police for playing with a, with a toy gun and people were like, well, why was he pointing the gun at the police? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, really people? Seriously. Right. You know? and it was, oh it was plastic God. and, yeah. and orange and bubbles come out of it. But yeah. you know, yeah. You right. know, so, so it's those, those kinds of things. And, and so let yourselves be uncomfortable hmm. because there are people who are sitting in the fire. Yeah. Imagine their discomfort and their discomfort is being used for your is being used to leverage you and leverage your life. Right. So there's right. a level of responsibility around that. It's like, you know, um, looking at child labor and going, I had no idea this was child labor and then becoming responsible and then looking at how do we dismantle that system? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But you need to understand what the system is before you can do that. And trying to solve racism at the interpersonal level is, um, I have this quote and I use it all the time because I really love it by Henry David Thoreau. And it's for every thousand people beating at the branches of evil, there's only one beating at the root. Hmm. Okay. So everybody wants to solve this thing at the interpersonal level when actually this is institutional and systemic and you learn from the institutions and the systems to internalize the process. And then that process gets acted out in the interpersonal relationships. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so trying to solve it at the interpersonal relationships is a lot harder, believe it or not, than really looking because see, when you're, you're trying to do it at the interpersonal level, what happens is you're then ignoring the cause. Right, right. It's like, so, so the interpersonal level, if I'm hearing you correctly, and please tell me if I'm not, is when I just want to hug you. And I mean, I remember the first moment we met Milagros, yes, we were, we were in line. There were, we went to an event with 2,500 women and we were standing next to each other. We were first in line and started like a big chant, you know, for everybody. And right. And I just want to hug you. I want to hug everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. And so with that, and that's not bad. It's good. Exactly. Absolutely. And and I have a responsibility to go deeper and to understand the root and the history of how did we get here. And that's my responsibility right. is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. So 
I think we all want to go, let's just love everybody. Mm -hmm. And so it's a both and love everybody. And part of loving everybody is really understanding the history that has not been told. And yet is is in our is in all of our DNAs and that we all need to heal from that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and everyone requires something different, right? So people of color require something different from whites require, um, because of how they internalize the process. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and so so everybody needs something different, but everybody needs healing around this yeah. thing. Because it's it's been a dehumanization of humanity. Yeah. So Milagros, I love, I love so much. I'm, I'm so appreciative of, of everything that you're sharing. One thing that I have not known how to do, I want to hear the stories. I want to hear, that's how I love getting to know somebody is to really know their story. And sometimes I'm, a, I'm afraid to ask is I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how, how, do, how do we approach the conversation? You need to be willing to make mistakes. Mm. You need to just, I mean, period, the end, that's it. You need to be willing to make mistakes around this stuff. And, you know, and I always tell people, you know, if you get it wrong, you know, let someone correct you. Because here's the thing about that. While we're busy trying to figure out what is politically correct, <laughs> if I should call you black, African-American, Latino, you know, person of color. That, yeah. yeah, that's the interpersonal level. And that's where we are kept busy. Mm. That busy is about destabilization. And if you're destabilized, you can't break down the systems and the institutions that maintain the dysfunction. Got it. So, so be willing to make mistakes and go after the places where the difference can be made. Let me give you an example. I worked on a project uh, years ago called Congressional Conversations on Race. And we worked with members of, of Congress for three years around this whole thing, um, around issues of race. And I created a program that was a three-part program. And, and the three-part program was based on the work that I do uh, and that I've been doing for you know 20 some odd years. And what I noticed by doing this work is that there are three things that people need in order to, to begin the process of understanding, right? So they need the historical context. They need to have some kind of, of visceral experience, whether it's you know, through a film or through um, you know, a reenactment or, or being there or you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then they can have a conversation because then the conversation is different, okay? Mm-hmm. So... So we created this, this program and, when, and in our program, we would expose the members to some of the history or in their district, okay? And then we would take them on a tour of, um, you know, of these places and, um, and show them whatever it was, because we would work with the members at first and, and ask them, you know, what do you want to focus on? Because when it comes to race, it could be, you know, it could be work, it could be education, it could be, you know, like it's a million things because they're all impacted by race. Absolutely. So, um, so I remember we were on a bus and we're doing a presentation and, um, and the members got to invite whoever they felt were stakeholders in the community and needed to be in the conversation. And this particular place had what, what is known as a food desert. Food deserts are places where there are no supermarkets in specific neighborhoods. And there are a lot of fast food places, but no supermarkets where people can get fresh fruits and vegetables and things like that. This particular place what had a food desert, but it also had a farmer's market 
that showed up once or twice a week. A lot of the people in this neighborhood had no transportation. So there was a bus system in the neighborhood, but the bus didn't go anywhere near the farmer's market. Hmm. Nowhere near the farmer's market. So here we are at the bus and we're doing this presentation and we had invited um, a couple of, of uh, executives from two different supermarkets to show them how they have supermarkets on the white side of town, but on the black side of town, they were nowhere to be seen, okay? Hmm. And so, so here we are on this bus and um, do it, we're doing this presentation and this woman gets on the phone and I'm thinking to myself, she's not paying attention. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> listening to us. Um, yeah, and, um, and she gets off the phone and she goes, okay, it's done. And, and I was sort of like, what is she talking about? And she said, there's gonna be a bus stop there starting tomorrow. Mm. That's how quickly you can make a shift if you want to. You can make changes. That doesn't mean that the internalized stuff is a different story. That's lifelong learning, okay? Yes, yes. But while you're lifelong learning, there are things that can be done that can make people's lives easier, that can change institutions, that can make institutions aware of the fact that, hey, you don't have any supermarkets over there. Why not? Why don't yes. you have any supermarkets over there? Because these people obviously have enough money to go to the fast food places. If you right. have a supermarket there, they'll buy fresh foods and vegetables which can, which can make a difference to them and their families. You know, right. so, so you need to make people aware. People who have power and who are in positions of power can make a huge difference, but you need to understand what the difference is yourself. You mm -hmm. need to be educated enough to be able to understand it. You need to be able to, um, to really open yourself up to new possibilities and you need to be a risk taker. Yes. This is, this is so important, right? And, and uh, thank you for that example. It's, it's, in, it's, it's incredible because it shows how quickly something can be done. It also shows it's this is happening all over. Mm -hmm. And we probably could go into many neighborhoods and notice the same thing. And like you're saying, make a phone call. And reading your materials before our conversation, I learned so much about how important this isn't just about changing the lives of the people in that neighborhood. We're talking about huge changes to the economy, improvements to the economy when when a group of people now has fresh food, yeah. when a group of students has, you know, young people have fresh food to eat before they go to school, when there is, there is more opportunity for education. I mean, even the wage gap that you were talking about, watching your TED Talk, you said it is a trillion, it would add a trillion dollars to the economy if we evened out the wage gap. Yeah, that's just one state. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed that part. What? One state date. Uh, we are wondering how to improve our economy. And, and how about this? We, we start paying people the same. Mm -hmm. yeah. Milagros, you have given us so much to think about, and you have given us so much history, so much context. I, I am so appreciative of that knowledge. I'm so appreciative of understanding the small, like the quote unquote, small things I can do. And I, what I'm hearing is know the context and be curious, make, make mistakes, take some risks, yeah. take some risks. Be uncomfortable. And be uncomfortable. Yeah. Thank you. Be uncomfortable. Yeah. And that it is going to benefit, that it has this huge benefit. I mean, reading and hearing about 
the benefits to organizations that are diverse and how they're more innovative, how they're more productive and profitable, hearing about how, how then people want to work more for them and yeah. how the better customer service, et cetera. And so there's there's so much value. Yeah. And this is so important. And I, I thank you because I know that I have blind spots and ignorance and I am committed to to finding those blind spots and to filling them. Yeah. And so you are helping me with that. And I am so appreciative. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really excited. I'm hoping that your listeners will join us. I have a, a Facebook race healer group that is very active. People post all kinds of wonderful things on there. Um, I ask the joiners to be patient and compassionate with one another because we're all in process and we're all learning. Um, but it's a wonderful, very active group. Um, and, you know, frankly, I'm looking for more people who want to have me come in and do the two-day healing racism seminar in their community, in their organization, because it transforms everything. Mm-hmm. And, in you know, it, I'm always so humble to see by the end of day two where people are versus where they came in the first day. Mm-hmm. It's just extraordinary. It just fills my heart. Um this is really the work of my heart. It wasn't work I ever wanted to do or I got <laughs> to do, but, uh, but it's really a calling for me. And, um, and I look at it from a lot of different perspectives. And people have been going through this program for you know, over 20 years, and it's still viable, powerful, um, and people come out of it transformed. So looking mm. for more people who want to just really want to open their hearts and look at this stuff and um, and get a sense of hope. Because for me, that was really important, is that people who go through this program end up with a sense of hope and a knowing, wow, there is something I can do. I thought there was nothing I could do about that, but there actually is, you know? And so, um, yeah, so this hopefully is- folks will join me. And then also I have three books that I published that um, you know, people can find on Amazon, um, 11 Reasons to Become Race Literate, um, Eight Essentials to a Race Conversation, uh, which is a great book, and um, also the um, Speaking Race in Healthcare. And for folks who want to get um, a free uh, manual on how to hold conversations on race, I give that away for free on my website, milagrosphillips.com. Mm, mm. So generous. And we have links to all of that in the show notes. So uh, the free download is an absolute must. Mm-hmm. Your TED Talk, which I've seen and we'll put a link to, is an absolute must. I am uh, really excited about the Facebook group. And so we'll have a, a link to that too, because it sounds like it's a place for everyone to engage in this conversation and to learn and to grow, which is so important. And I haven't yet had the privilege of, of attending one of your two-day seminars. I keep look, waiting for one to come when the dates, I can make the both dates. Um, but I've, I've talked to people who have attended um, and, and I've heard incredible things. And so you do those and people can attend individually or they can bring it into their organization. Correct. Yeah. Right. So, and all yeah. of that is, is on your website. Yeah. Milagros, thank you so much. Oh, um, Karen, thank you. This has oh, been a real joy. <laughs> for me too. For me too. This is really important. I am dedicated. When I heard my friend's story and I thought, he, he's a yoga instructor. You know, my friend's husband. He is a yoga instructor. He's a meditation instructor. He wouldn't hurt a fly. What on earth? He's watering plants. Like, it, like you said, there has to be a visceral 
there has to be something that evokes the visceral response. And that happened at the same time as way too many, way too many of our young children were being senselessly killed. And that was a wake-up call for me. Mm. That was my wake-up call. And I said, I because I'd always say, well, I'm not racist. And it's like, well, let's look at, is there any part of me? And the truth <laughs> is I did not know the history and I did not know enough. And I am, I didn't even see my own skin color because I was wrapped in my Jewish story. Mm-hmm. And I see how much privilege I've had. And I want to know the ways that I can do better. And I want to know the ways that we as a community can heal because I want every single being alive to live to their full potential. I mean, that's that's really how we're going to thrive. So Malagros, yeah. before I let you go, there's something I love to do with my guests and it's called a purpose power play round. And I'm just going to ask you a couple of random questions. And whatever's the first thing that comes to your heart is the right answer. Does that sound good? Sounds great. (laughs) Okay. Other than your own, of course, what is a book that you think every woman needs to read? Oh, Women Who Run With Wolves. It's an old book, but I love that book. (laughs) Oh, I have chills. One of my favorite, favorite, favorites. Yes. Yes. I actually recently reread it because I thought, oh, I hadn't read this, you know, in about 10 years and I needed it. So good. So good. It's really like the depth of of feminine wisdom. Oh, yeah. And that's in our hearts and our souls and our fire. So love that. Okay. Question number two. You said you didn't think that this would be your career. So when you were a little girl, what did you want to be? I wanted to be a ballerina. Oh, I love that. And do you dance? I so dance. Yes, woman. <laughs> I love to dance. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I love that. I love that. Did you ever do ballet? I did not. Um, I was told when I was four years old by a neighbor from across the street who used to watch me dancing on my porch all the time. Uh, and she asked what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I wanted to be a ballerina. And she said, well, no, you can't because um, there are no black ballerinas. And I said, oh, yes, mm. there are. And she said, well, no, watch. Uh, in the DR, the uh, ballet used to come on Sundays. She said, watch and see if you see anyone who looks like you uh, when the ballet comes. And of course, I, I saw and, and I didn't. And I was like, I was, you know, I, I still remember that great disappointment. And then thinking, oh, well, then I'll be a singer. (laughs) And I wanted to be an opera singer, actually. I was probably the only 11-year-old in the entire U.S. that could sing the entire (laughs) score to Lucia de la Vermoor. Oh, oh, you make me want to hear that. Oh, can you still sing? Can you still sing that? You know what? Actually, No, I can't. I can't. I used to be a carlatura, but I I was molested by, sexually molested by my manager in New York. And uh, I didn't sing for 26 years after that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, wow. that's my me too moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear you, sister. I hear you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you. <laughs> and I just want to like love all over the four-year-old inside of you who wanted to be a yeah. ballerina because, uh, you know, well, no, I paint, I, and I that's such a great example. I paint what? them. I paint them. You too. paint I them. paint ballerinas and musicians. Yes. Mm, yes. Mm, <laughs> mm, mm, mm. It's so beautiful. I, but I, I paint black ballerinas. Well, thank you. Okay, yes. Just to be clear. Yes. <laughs> as, as you should. Thank you very much. But what a great example there of the conversation of the institutionalized racism. Someone telling you that that isn't possible for you because of the color, you know, the pigment in your skin. It makes no sense. Mm-hmm. But it's such a great example of 
I think about any of any children who wanted to, let's say, be president and before President Obama were, well, there's been, not been a black president, so you can't be. Mm-hmm. And then they give up on their dreams. So it's really, it's heartbreaking. And it's such an example of how we don't even realize yeah. the the down uh, the down spiral and what happens. Okay. My last purpose power play round question. Okay. okay. What is w- <laughs> one thing that you think every woman needs to know? How powerful she is. The reason that we destabilize women is because women are incredibly powerful. Always remember that no one wants to steal from someone who has nothing, and no one wants to destabilize anyone who doesn't have power. Mm. Okay? Mm-hmm. We are incredibly powerful. Whew. You can just take that one right to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> right? And people want to tell us as women we don't have power or want to tell someone, a black person, they don't have power. But that's because we're actually afraid. They're afraid. Men are, uh, not all men, of course, right? Patriarchy is afraid of our power as women. And and in the, sto- in, in the history that Milagro shared, you are, it makes so much sense that they were afraid of the power of those Africans. Mm, thank you. That is so... We are so powerful. Mm-hmm. Milagros, we have learned so much from you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am so grateful and I am excited to learn more with and from you. And to all of you listening, thank you for listening to this very, very important episode of the Purpose Girl podcast. I hope that you learned. I hope that you expanded. I hope you got a little uncomfortable and that therefore you are growing and you grew and we're going to grow together If you have not yet, please, we love hearing from you. Send me a message, leave a five-star review, leave one sentence about how this podcast has impacted you, how this episode impacts you. We love hearing from you. If you have not yet joined our Facebook community, please go on over to Purpose Girls, the Women's Happiness Network, and join the Facebook group there. We're doing so many Facebook Lives right now. We're bringing you so much great content and journal prompts for you to improve your life. You can find me over on Instagram at Karen Rockhind and on my business page, for Facebook at Coach Karen Rockhind. Most importantly, please share this with every woman who needs to know. Share this with your daughters. Teach them early. Share this with your mothers who may not have ha- gotten access to this information. Share this with the women at work. Share this information because that's how we're going to change the world one woman at a time. As always, may you live purposefully, may you love yourself, and may you love life. Bye for now. <laughs>